So, just a heads up, this episode comes with a trigger warning. It contains discussions of substance abuse, depression, suicide, and suicidal ideation that may be disturbing to some audience members, but we hope you'll find it inspirational. Listener discretion is advised. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please text or call 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline where trained counselors can help you. I have died in many, many, many more stories than I have survived. I feel like my acting career has been one long rehearsal for my death. Hey there, I'm Michael Nathanson. And you know, I feel like my death has been one long rehearsal for this podcast. Our favorite characters never really die, do they? No, they live in the hearts and minds of fans for generations to come. Welcome to Playing Dead. Drum roll, please. We have the one and only David Dastmalchian for this entire episode. Now, you've seen him in such blockbusters as The Dark Knight, uh, both Ant-Man films, Prisoners, Blade Runner 2049, and Dune. Now, due to his busy schedule, David was only available to join us virtually. He is an actor who has died in many, many roles, but today, we're gonna focus on his epic death in James Gunn's Suicide Squad and how life can imitate art. Okay, so let's be professional, and now we're going to start this podcast. Uh, <laughs> hi, folks. So, uh, hi, folks. I'm really excited today to talk to this gentleman here, David Desmalchian. Okay, that's how you pronounce his name. Everybody? There it is. Got it? You got it. Got it. Okay, great. I don't want anyone to fuck this up anymore. Do people fuck that name up? They used oh, to. man. For, for 45 years, right. it's been the reality of my life. So that's okay. I'm okay with it. It's a good conversation starter. As soon as somebody yeah. botches my name, it's weird to not say something because then what would happen is months turned into years of sometimes relationships that people would continue to mispronounce my name. And then the onus is on me because I never actually said, uh, that's not actually how you say it. So, but thank you for coming in strong and, yeah. and getting it well, right. The first time I saw your name was in the credit of the dark Knight. I was like looking for your name and I didn't know what that character's name was. He's credited as the Joker's thug, but in the movie, Batman does actually call me by name. He says, his name is Schiff Thomas. So the character's name is actually Thomas Schiff, but for, for whatever reason, they just credited me as Joker's thug, which I used to be a little like, huh, it would have been nice to have a name, but that's okay. It changed my it, life. It worked out, yeah, it worked yeah. out just fine. Um, just fine. That was the first time I saw it. And I was like, fuck, man, that guy is amazing. I love him. And Thank you. I would beg, bar and steal to have your current career because, I mean, you are the go-to for like interesting, edgy, kind of like supporting characters, but jump to 2021 and this movie comes out called The Suicide Squad and you're like, you're the lead in that movie for me and any other person who ever felt like a misfit and a weirdo in their lives and wanted to actually have a superhero who like had a great arc from going from like total introvert or whatever you want to call him or, or just kind of like someone who's made fun of or right or just felt marginalized. You never felt like you fit into that sort of like villain group. When you think about James Gunn and the, the films that he makes, yes, his films always have their central protagonist that you can track the story with. But look at like in the Suicide Squad or in Guardians or any of his films, he creates an ensemble of characters where I think the audience, you can latch on to the person that you most identify with in a way that really personalizes the viewing experiences for the audience. And, it, and it, it's really 
special the way he does that. And so, yeah, you're right. And thank you for saying that. I do feel like if I was watching the suicide squad and someone else was playing Abner polka dot man, I would have probably been like, Oh, that's my guy. And so how lucky I was that when James gave me that role, I could identify so much with him because I absolutely was, you know, somebody that didn't know where I fit in. How would I belong? There was things about me that I was super ashamed of both internally and externally. And then all of a sudden, I was able to figure out ways in which in my personal life, I could become myself and fully embrace my flaws to my own benefit as I tried to like solve the riddles of life and being a husband, being a father, being an actor, being a friend, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just like the perfect gift of a role for me. You know, when you get those roles and you just read it and you're like, I hate to say it, it sounds so cliche, but it's like, I felt like I was born to play polka dot man. I mean, I was, I'm literally a guy who was as a child had polka dot spots all over my skin because I have a, a autoimmune disorder skin condition called vitiligo, which caused me to have splotches all over. And, and I was called everything from polka dots to milk mustache to, uh, someone actually called you polka dots when you were yes. a kid. Yes, at the pool. Because in the summer when I was a kid and we didn't really know what was going on with my condition, you just spent the day at the public pool where I grew up in, in the suburbs of Kansas City and it was just like a daily routine. Like you get up, go to the public pool and that was your babysitter for the day. And so I was scorched and that caused the condition to be as pronounced as it's ever been in my life. So it was all over and I was thoroughly... Uh, you know, mortified about it. I don't get sun exposure anymore because it causes me a lot of pain. I'm like a real biological vampire. And here we are. I'm a full grown adult and I get to play a superhero who is covered in polka dot. <laughs> Life is weird, man. Uh, yeah. yeah, man. That's crazy. And James is a very good friend of mine. But James did not know that about me because, you know, like I said, now I'm so conscious of my sun exposure, my sun protection, that if you look at me closely, you can definitely see my spots, but it's not as pronounced as it was when I was younger. And he really just wasn't conscious of it. So when he gave me the role and then we had the conversation, I told him about my polka dots. He was like, this is crazy, man. He's like, this is really nuts. Life has a funny way of just sort of like coming back to where it all began in some way, shape, or form, and things are meant to be. Was that a black cat that just walked by you? This is my cat. Her name is Bubblegum. Her full name is Abner Bubblegum Polka Dot Cat because I rescued her on the set of The Suicide Squad. She was a feral cat in Cologne, Panama, when we were filming the big sequence, which we're definitely going to talk about today, considering the nature of your podcast. But I... Yes, um, sir. I will get there. I promise. I fell in love with her and I brought her back to the United States. And she How were you able to get us. a cat back from Panama in the You know, COVID? I... It took some effort, but I made some donations to a local animal shelter. And then the vet at the shelter helped me by getting her vaccinated and quarantined and tested. And then she had to stay behind. So someone else actually from the film who had to stay much later than the rest of the cast and crew brought her uh, a, a little while after I had left Panama and then I met her at LAX and it's been love ever since. She's a integral part of our family and was a huge part of helping us get through the pandemic. She's been such a treat. I just love it. You're somebody I wanted to talk to 
gigantic, amazing, crazy death in Suicide Squad aside, you die in a lot of things. And it was funny because like one, two, three, you died in like three of my favorite movies of the last couple of years. I'd seen Blade Runner and I loved it. And I just loved your character in that. That was the one shitty thing about Blade Runner was that you died way too early. Ah, thanks, man. Yeah. Blade Runner, Dune. Well, I guess Blade Runner, then I saw you die in Suicide Squad, then Dune. I'm trying to think of the sequence of that. <laughs> we just love your the way you die. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve, who directed um, Blade Runner, obviously, and he directed you in Prisoners, right? Yes, that was how we met, was through Prisoners. Right. And um, that was uh, a pretty savage death as well. Yeah. And so he has now killed me on screen three times, and he seems to derive a great deal of joy out of helping to uh, construct my deaths, and I'm here for it. I can't imagine really uh, being in better hands to uh, to practice dying with. I have died in many, many, many more stories than I have survived, and I have you know played some bad guys, but I've played a whole range of you know characters, and I find it really interesting and strange how many times I have died in a story. In fact, I'm challenging anybody out here listening to try and call that number for me, because if you add the television deaths as well, which there have been some, I, I think it would be, there's two things that I would like to accomplish in the coming years. One, I want to cut together a reel of my deaths and the other, I want to cut together a reel of all the times I've played a character who has been shown in like a police sketch and then, or, or surveillance footage. <laughs> there has, it's happened so many times where someone is like shown a sketch of me to someone else from CSI to prisoners to unit. It's like, there's been these sketches of me and surveillance footage and mug shots. I think uh, that would be really fun. David, my friend, wishes do come true. Uh, while I haven't put together a reel of your death scenes, I will now perform a dramatic listing of your most memorable deaths. <sighs> in Sushi Girl, you die in a car crash and it was all your fault. In Prisoners, you committed suicide using a stolen police gun. In the Belko experiment, you were skewered in the back of the head with a metal bar. In Blade Runner 2049, it was death by killing karate chop to the back of the neck. The domestic shot in the head, bird box shot in the chest, Dune poisoned by toxic gas, and the Suicide Squad crushed to death by an extraterrestrial starfish. <sighs> and scene. I feel like my acting career has been one long rehearsal for my death, which in many ways I think acting uh, and storytelling is a kind of preparation for our, our own mortality. And it's a way of kind of going through the, the cycle of beginnings, middles and endings and birth and life and death. It's been fascinating. And it's great that we're going to get a chance to talk today because it's not getting easier. That's for certain. I would have thought after dying dozens of times in really complex and well, you know, choreographed and well-filmed ways that it might be something that starts to feel like, oh, you know, because it always pre presented a bit of anxiety for me and for many reasons. Since I was a, a young 
child, I was fixated on death and finality. And I had a great deal of untreated and looking back, I'm sad sometimes when I think about my little self and I wish that I would have gotten maybe a different kind of support. And, you know, I think my parents just weren't aware of things like anxiety and, and depression, especially for young people that that's something mm -hmm. that seems like, oh, that's a grown up person's problem. I was hyper fixated and I had racing thoughts and kind of obsessive thoughts about death. And I was raised in a religious upbringing where this whole idea was kind of pitched to us that like, if you said these certain words or you did this certain thing, when you face your mortality, then you're going to just live forever. And as weird as that, that whole idea is to me, it was terrifying. This, that was also terrifying. So I was terrified of both, dying as a kid. And I was also terrified of what infinity was because that seemed like my, obviously our brains, as much as we try to quantify it through everything from mathematics and physics to, you know, literature and art, we still, you can't fully grasp infinity, no matter how hard you try, you just can't. And so it would keep me awake. I, I started suffering really bad insomnia in like fourth and fifth grade. And by fifth grade, that was a big contributing factor, but so was just, I think, chemical imbalance and some definitely, you know, difficult times at home. I made my first suicide attempt and I thankfully, you know, survived that. And then going... What age was that? I was 11 and it was not dealt with properly. I'll say that. It was definitely not handled by professionals who should have gotten involved. And so the issues, though buried, continued to linger and evolve. And then, you know, my obsession with death and in mortality and infinity, they kind of morphed and grew. And as I became a teenager, it was much more about just insecurity with myself and feeling, you know, like I didn't know the value of my life. And it seemed like life was, was so much suffering and difficulty because again, I was struggling with imbalances in my brain that just weren't being treated. So my brain was irrationally sending me signals of like, ah, what's the point of this? You know, this is too much work, too much effort for this. And that's not a healthy brain. That's a brain in crisis, right? But I didn't know that. I just thought that's the way the world and everybody else must seem to be okay. So there's something wrong with me. So those issues went untreated and I started treating them myself because I found at the time the magic of pot and alcohol and then eventually pills. And that was like this great way that all of a sudden everything kind of shifted back into a manageability. And unfortunately, as you know, is obvious, we've seen that story play out many a time. Those are not the actual solutions to... No, that's not a way to stay off the So, So no. by the time I was in my late teens, I had formed pretty intense addictions and untreated mental unwellness. And I ended up becoming, you know, a full-time addict. And then I struggled with suicidal ideation a lot. And then I made several more attempts, which thankfully, miraculously did not um, succeed. 
And I eventually got the miracle of sobriety and treatment and recovery and community and, you know, I rebuilt a life. And I started to work with both therapists and psychiatrists. And I started to really delve into the issues that needed treatment and through both therapy and medication have been able to find a way to navigate my life that even though it is still rife with anxiety and dips of depression and fearful thoughts about mortality, immortality, infinity, et cetera, it's all now in a safe enough space that I can do this and I can be a husband, I can be a father, I can, you know, just, I can live. You can talk about it honestly and in a vulnerable way. And and I think it's, you know, it's important for people to see that you can overcome these things. Were you acting growing up? I loved theater and I did as much community theater and school theater as I could. I was also involved in sports and, you know, speech and debate. I really loved film and theater and and all of that. So when I was in uh, my senior year of high school, I was going to go two directions to get the financing for college. One was either playing sports, which was an option. The other was I auditioned for this incredible program at the theater school, DePaul University. And I got accepted to the program and I got this great scholarship. And so then I went and started my formal training at like 18 and it changed my life. Now, sadly, at that same time, concurrently, I had developed this monster (laughs) addiction and untreated, you know, mental illness. So I was learning and thriving in the theater by day and then just struggling to keep myself afloat by night. And then eventually the bottom dropped out and I had to walk away from the work for a number of years. And I was really scared. Like, am I going to be able to work without the benefit of drugs and alcohol because they had been my, you know, elixir. I thought back in the day, I was like, oh, that's what, what is really helps me do this. And then my friend was producing and directing Oscar Wilde's Salome. And and he asked me to play the role of Naraboth, who is the soldier who's so in love with Salome that he kills himself before her. And I said, I don't know if I could do this. And we kind of went through it and it ended up being a really really amazing experience. And and I realized my acting was going to be better than ever before because I now had this clarity of both my life experience and the sobriety. And so then just weirdly, dude, like role after role after role started coming in where I had to reenact or pretend to die. You know, being an actor is just, it's a challenging thing for your psychology it can be yes if you yes and it can save you and it can kill you and so if used as the right tool it can be magical but it can bring up a lot so i can only imagine yes having to walk away from it for a beat probably was healthy yes it was it was healthy but also then getting back in and realizing Mm -hmm. my approach to the work continues to evolve i continue to learn and i think that's an important part of being an actor, an artist of any discipline is I'm going to continue to learn from the amazing actors that I get the chance to be around and watch in their process. And then the directors who direct me, I, I'm so fortunate to work with directors who really, you know, can help me break through and discover things about myself as an actor. But when I got back into the work, I recognized that one of my favorite things about the process of creating characters and and performing roles 
has nothing to do with mining my personal psychology or personal history, even though that was one of the techniques I was taught when I was in training. It can be an effective door sometimes to just visit a place, but it, it cannot be the fuel that drives the engine of my work. And there, there was another approach and, and style of the work that Going back, I remember thinking felt very plasticine and so technical that it felt like it was sucking some of the air out of the danger of the art. And that was a much more technical, calculated kind of study of text meeting director vision, meeting actor impulse and finding that jazzy balance between really marking the notes on the the bars and and knowing where you need to get and understanding that like manipulating the muscles in my face or the muscles in my vocal cords to convey a certain emotion even if what's happening inside my brain or my soul has absolutely nothing to do with, let's say this, we're doing a scene where my pet has, is laying dead in front of me and, and I have to manufacture all of those visual cues that an audience would believe that this is really happening to me. For me to go into my mind and remember what it was like when I held my last cat who passed away in my arms as she was dying and, and to go there it creates a, a, a stimulation of emotions that is interesting for sure, but it's not to me personally effective in creating these gestures and these inflections that the camera needs me to convey. What it does is it creates what it was like really at that time, which is bigger, louder, not as communicative as necessary for the story that I'm trying to tell. So what I find to be really wonderful and freeing is that I can, you know, get really specific into what I want my face, my body, my fingers, my hands, my voice to do in relationship to say, responding to my scene partner, the text, the director's choreography or blocking for me and hoping that what that does for the audience is trick them into believing that I am really holding my dead cat or as in 90% of the body of my acting work, I am actually, let's say, dying in this scene. Now- You are the dead cat in most of yeah, your work. Yes, yes. Now, the here's the tricky thing, and I'm sure you understand this. And I didn't understand this until last year. So like I said, we're still learning constantly. I- really pride myself on being the kind of actor that at the end of the working day, hangs up his costume, takes off his makeup, goes home. And that was a great day. When no matter what, did I have to murder somebody today? Did I have to die today? Did I have to go through a broken heart today? Great. I, I concocted that with my tools, hopefully pleased the director, hopefully was a great scene partner for my acting compatriots. Hopefully Whatever we captured, the audience is going to believe really happened. But at the end of the day, I was like, and now I go and play, you know, Pokemon with my kid. Now, interestingly, my therapist last year, when I was having a dark time, said to me, how much did the roles that you're playing affect your mood outside of work? And I said, not at all. You know, it's just, I'm a very technical actor and blah, blah. I happened to catch my wife out of the corner of my eye because I was doing a Zoom session and her jaw was like, on the floor, 
like she was rolling her eyes in like a way I was like, what? (laughs) And she was like, are you joking me? What I failed to realize was that even though I am manufacturing all these physical gestures to go through the reality of these things happening to me, my body doesn't know the difference. So you are still in ways traumatizing your spirit, whatever you'd want to describe it, your mind, your body. And there is a part of you that as much as you know, it's make believe and pretend actually doesn't. So your body is still going through that trauma. And that's something I'd never taken the insight or time to really recognize. And now the way I help myself come down after a really hard day or the way I prepare for it is more meaningful. I'm having more anxiety lately with some of the work I'm doing than I've ever had before. And so I still have a lot to learn about how to not be so afraid of the work. Yeah. You know, there's two kinds of actors out there who are striving to have a successful career. Some are willing to sort of bypass their humanity to do it (laughs) or leapfrog their humanity to do it or leapfrog certain things or sacrifice, I'd say, certain things in their lives that they feel might get in the way, like relationships, for example. Um, Sure. And there are some actors who, you know, don't want to be miserable all the time. You know, it's not a fun place to be. I mean, look, I would never judge an actor for their process unless, unless it gets in my way, unless it makes my job harder or is abusive to those around A hundred percent. Or if it makes the gaffer's job harder, it makes the DP's job harder. When it's making PA's jobs harder, then it's BS if you ask me. Then it's just like masturbation. hundred percent. And you know what? And it's funny because like a lot of these guys who, and gals who are in film, you know, a lot of people who come from theater often that could be a blessing and a curse because in theater, and I think you probably agree with me, it's much more of an actor's medium, right? So you have a lot more room, a lot more breathing room to like talk about your feelings. But I think once you get to doing film and especially doing film at a high level, like you have done, the director, the makeup people, the extras, I mean, there are so many cogs to the wheel. And I think once you are able to recognize that, you can kind of plug into like what you said, the technical aspects of it. So you're ready to be that character, live those given circumstances, but remembering that not everybody cares about how you feel at any given moment. Exactly. And don't you love it when you're on set with a master or or if you're on stage with a master, but when when I've been on set with somebody who has the mastery of their tools that they can do the craziest thing required of them, both physically, emotionally, vocally, you name it, and then reset to one and reset to one. They don't need to run over to Video Village and argue about, you know, how they look or what their, you know, their blocking is, the lighting is. They don't need to storm around getting in their moment or whatever. And I do some of that BS sometimes because I think it's a crutch that we can all lean on out of fear. But that's my dream. That's the actor I dream to be. I watch somebody you know, a Margot Robbie, a Hugh Jackman, a you name. I've, I've been around so many incredible freaking actors and they, these, just these masters that, that they can do it and do it and do it and do it and always discover a little something new, always give that director exactly what they needed, but a little extra spice, a little extra magic. They're always willing to like take the risks and, 
yet still be somebody that it can stand by for 20 minutes when they're in the moment because lighting is just lighting. Sometimes it's a pain in the ass or the sound is getting messed up or the camera's jammed or whatever. The biggest frustration I have is watching actors who are like, I'm ready, let's do this. And I'm like, shut your fucking... Sorry, shut your freaking mouth. No, like, go. No, no, please feel free. We have to curse in this podcast. Get, We're actors. Okay, We're it's like get the fuck out of here. Like, are you kidding me? You're you're ready. How about all these other people been ready yeah. waiting for you for so long? Like that kills. Yeah, me. I think in the last few years, I realized more than ever that my work will suffer if I'm not more balanced in my life about it, and if I can't get a hold of it. And, you know, we go up and down in that way with our work because also like, you know, depending on what you're presented with, you might have to go to a place that's pretty dark. And, you know, let's, I, I want to talk about Suicide Squad. Well, first of all, yes. just quickly. You want to talk about death, how I've died. Yes. It's just fascinating to me, right? I mean, like we are confronted with death in this world on a daily basis through COVID, through war, through so much. I mean, it's, it, we are all here for a breath and then we are gone. And what we are striving for, I think as actors, and I think you would agree with me, we're not heart surgeons. We're not going into war torn places and saving people. Like, you know, we understand, we, or we should understand, you know, our place in the cycle of, of things. But also I think the unique opportunity we have is to shine a mirror to what's going on in the world for people on a very diluted human basis, one-to-one. And if you can connect that way, with one person in the audience, whether it's theater, whether it's film, whatever. And I think you understand that. So here you are, you know, you go through all of these machinations through your life. I mean, a suicide attempt at 11 years old, cut to 2021, and you're in a movie called The Suicide Squad. Somehow you must be plugged into some kind of mysticism somewhere, somehow, because, you know, I don't know how else you would get around this and your brain would even wrap its mind around it. We we all are. We're all plugged into some kind of crazy mysticism. I I can't help but go, wow, life is bonkers. Life is so magical and mystical and weird and sometimes terrifying, but also really beautiful. So when you have those moments and you're standing there in the midst of a incredible giant set with, you know, hundreds of artists around trying to capture the moment perfectly and you're in a James Gunn film and you're like, I am about to get squashed by a five-story tall intergalactic starfish uh, monster you you just can't help i i I go like what the fuck life is how much of 11 year old david is in that scene so much so much so there's two things that i was really struggling that day because it's it's not i knew i was gonna die but the character doesn't so it's different right what was tricky for me was concocting a way to use my voice and my face and my body to reflect a kind of almost ecstatic, like religious joy of like, I found my purpose. I found my purpose. So I'm going to right now basically prove what a hypocrite I am about certain things because what I just told you five minutes ago about my process for acting, but I will say (laughs) I was having a really freaking hard time getting to a place that didn't feel just like I didn't want it to feel like a victory chant or like a self-congratulatory chant. I wanted it to just be 
ecstatic. Like I have found my purpose. It's like a God moment for Abner. I, that's what I wanted it to be bigger than just like, Oh, I'm actually a badass or, Oh, I can, I, you know, like, Oh, look at me go. It was like the transcendent moment. And to manufacture that is really hard vocally. And in the dead heat of Panama, while there's dust flying everywhere and Idris Ilba is standing five feet away from you, one of my favorite actors. And you're just like, Oh my God. And tears James has given me the gift of this moment in this film. I was like, I don't know what to do. He came we had a lovely chat. He basically just put his arm around me and was like, you, you've you got this. Like, I wrote this and I knew that you were the person to say this. So get out of your head. But what I did do was I thought about something for just a moment to give me a little tingle in my chest right before I did the performance. I thought about something, which was that I never wanted to have kids because if you go back to me as a young child, all the suffering that I, I felt and experienced, I had always thought like, why would I ever, you know, subject any anybody to that? And also I'll be a terrible father. I would be the worst father ever. Well, I've now had kids and I love being a father and I think I'm a damn good father. And I, and I work really hard at being a good father. And so I did say that to myself internally before I did the scene, I said, you're a good dad. You're actually like a good dad. And it caused this little like, transcendent like bubble of something in my heart that I think gave me that little extra oomph to do what I was trying to do. Cause you know, the work we do vocally, like I was trying to like really go from the bottom of my diaphragm, actually from like my hips to get to, to scream with this power and yet emotion. And so adding that little extra drop of personal eyes juice to it did help me. So that's how I faced the fear of that. I mean, look, when you're approaching the work, you can't just let it all go. I mean, it's all in there. I think the idea is that if you need to access something, you go through that sort of psychological, spiritual Rolodex and you find that that thing that maybe can connect you. But you don't have to then, you know, take two days and live in a hotel by yourself and pretend that you're... Your family's left you. <laughs> Hopefully not, man. My wife would be really annoyed with me. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't need to go there. But, you know, you were able to say like, you know, and, and that happens to me too. You know, sometimes if I just think about my kids it, and like if I'm doing an audition for a, for a self-tape or something and I, I have to be emotional in a moment, sometimes I'll just think about my kids. If you're lucky enough to have those things in your life where you can kind of brings you to that emotional sort of center, it's, it's, it's helpful. Not the reason to have kids. Actors don't just have kids to access deep emotions. Not good advice. I would never advise people to do that. Never use art as therapy, but there is beautiful art therapy. So it's a paradox, but never, never, never look at your work as a way of like processing childhood trauma or any of that because it's just not healthy and it's not fair to your collaborators. Um, exactly. If, exactly. Yeah. So that moment, right? Abner has his moment and he screams. What does he scream? I'm a superhero. I'm a motherfucking superhero. I heard that and I'm pretty sure I fist bumped or fist pumped rather and then smush. Fade in. Corto Maltese. Day. Starro, a gigantic starfish-like extraterrestrial, wreaks havoc on the city of Valle del Mar by using its tentacles to destroy buildings and its spores to control the minds of anyone they latch onto. 
Task Force X, the government-sanctioned Black Ops unit, primarily consisting of incarcerated supervillains, appears to be no match for the monster. Bloodsport, the squad's de facto leader, looks to Abner Krill, aka Polka Dot Man, for assistance. Abner, do you see who that is? Bloodsport yells, pointing to Starro. It's your mom! A usually quiet and timid man, and not a violent-hearted criminal. Abner is only able to kill if he sees his target as his mother, a demented scientist who is determined to turn her children into superheroes. By injecting her son with an interdimensional virus, Abner is able to project explosive polka dots to his intended target. With the prompt from Bloodsport, Abner peeks around the column he was hiding behind and sees Starro, now as a gigantic woman, wearing glasses and a dowdy floral house dress. It's his mother. He cautiously walks toward the creature and turns on the gauntlets attached to his arms, which helps project his lethal dots. He takes a deep breath, aims, and shoots polka dots at his mother, slash Starro's leg. Screaming in pain, we see that the mother monster's bottom leg has been disintegrated. Feeling more accomplished than he ever has in his entire life, Polka Dot Man grins and yells, I'm a superhero! He turns to Bloodsport, I'm a motherfucking super! Before he can even finish his proclamation, Starro's uninjured leg smashes down, squishing our superhero to death. Yeah. And when you actually yeah. filmed it, what happened in that moment technically? Bring us to that moment. Uh, in that moment, so we Abner doesn't know he's getting smushed. Right. So we played it through. I go, I'm a superhero. I'm a motherfucking superhero. And then I just sprayed the shit out of the leg. There's obviously not a five-story Starro in front of me, but they did have iPads to show me before the take, like where exactly Starro was, which looked like my mom, blah, blah, blah. So I did that. I screamed it through with pure joy. And then James just yelled, you know, freeze. And then I would jump out of frame and then they uh, would let the camera play a little bit longer. And that was it. And did you have this like blah moment where you just let it all out? Yeah. That? And you know what I did? I went and picked up um, bubble gum and because he didn't do many takes. James was really happy. He did it like three or four, maybe five times. And he was like, we got it. He gave me a huge hug. I was crying and I thanked him. And, you know, he just said, you did great. And then I walked over and, and there was that cat sitting on that DIT's lap. I, I picked her up and I said, okay, you're mine now. Thank you for for coming into my life. That that was my like self-care after doing that scene was I went and pet this incredible cat and then made my mind up that I was going to keep her. If only Neo had picked up that cat in the Matrix, <laughs> his life would have been just fine. Listen, you, you got to get going. You have a fitting for like yet another movie that you're doing because yes. you just work and work and work and work and work. And we are grateful for it because your work is fucking dope. Well, let's do this again. There's there's many more deaths to come. There's many more deaths we haven't discussed. So let's, uh, let's, let's do it again, totally, man. Totally. Yeah, I would love to. That was really wonderful and cathartic. I'm glad. And I hope anybody who's listening who is struggling at all with any of the 
stuff we talked about today, you know that you can go to Google SAMHSA, where is a huge resource of all free uh, options and access for you. And just know you're not alone. And there are people out there that are ready to help you. So yeah. Absolutely. You're not alone. There is help and support available. Uh, SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and you can find them at samhsa.gov. Thank you, though, for letting me have a chance to talk about that stuff. It's really cathartic. Oh, sharing your story, is, it's wonderful. It's, and it's great. It's great not just for actors coming up, but just for human beings to hear in this time when we're all kind of dealing with a lot of shit. And, you know, it's important to hear from those people that we respect and admire we see on screen and, and you know, that we're all human and we're all part of this human story. But, um, you know, tell James, you and I, prequel... Polka Dot Man and his brother. I'm thinking <laughs> you that. got I it, love man. It. I think that that's a great, uh, you know, I think we could go somewhere with that. But listen, listen, man, it's been a pleasure. And um, till the next time and, and good luck, break legs and everything. And uh, thank you for all of your iconic deaths. And you're the man, David Desmalchin. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll talk soon. We gather here today to mourn the death of Abner Krill, better known as the motherfucking superhero, Polka Dot Man. Abner was best known for being the crazy one in Team Force X. But despite his many issues, Abner was a soft-spoken, lovely, meek man, not prone to violence. Unless, of course, it was against his mother. The Colonial Marines want you to join us on our next episode, where we explore the world of aliens. I was wearing a sleeveless blouse, showed her my muscles, and she was like, oh, wow. She was very confused why I was so muscular, and I said, oh, well, you know, I was doing bodybuilding, and she said, oh, I thought you were an actor. Are you a bodybuilder? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm an actor. I just started doing bodybuilding because I was kind of unemployed and, and bored, and a really big reason why I got the role was they really, really wanted the character to have the physique. We definitely formed like a very tight bond because we felt like we were the orphans that nobody wanted because as people were dying off, they were leaving and then like we were stuck behind, so. Did you call her Sigourney? I still call her Ripley. I very rarely call her Sigourney. Like she's, I don't know, she's Ripley. <laughs> Playing Dead is hosted by Michael Nathanson. Hey, that's me. Produced by Charlie Webster. Written and produced by Jill Marie Hoffman. Edited by Aaron Florence. Executive producers Charlie Webster and yours truly, Michael Nathanson. Special thanks to Kyle Epler and Stephen Sletton. Produced by Lionsgate Sound and Magic Scope. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.